Good evening and greetings to each of you this evening in the worthy name of Christ. I've been blessed by what's already been shared and I'm honored and privileged to be here this evening to to share with you on uh, the CAST project. Uh, when you came into the service tonight, you probably received one or one of either one of these bulletins uh, that has uh, the word conservative Amish or conservative Anabaptist service program <laughs> or CASP on the front of it. Either one of these, they're, they're pretty much basically the same information. This is a recent update of what I want to share with you tonight on what the CAST project is all about. But uh, my wife and I live in Schaeferstown and I serve as bishop at the uh, Lebanon Valley Mennonite Church. We're part of the uh, Mid-Atlantic Mennonite Fellowship, and so we uh, have been in this building a few times in the recent past because we have some grandchildren who go to the school right next door here. Uh, Matthew and Heidi Musser have their children coming here, and they're our grandchildren, and so we... uh, we feel it's a very important role that grandparents play in coming to school programs, and so we, uh, we uh, enjoy getting to know a little bit more about Weavertown. So God bless you in what all you're doing and serving the Lord, and, and uh, we're, we're uh, like I said, grateful to be here. And this evening, what I have to share, I'd like to start out with a question But before I share what that question is, I'd like to give you a little bit of history of a setting that I heard this question in, and uh, it was quite an interesting interesting, uh, setting of of who shared it, and I might say at the very beginning here, lest I forget to say it, there's a table in the back that I have some books, information for you to look at and if you write down the names of the books and you want to get them, that would be fine. I can, uh, I can assure you they, they are very good in reference to the aspect of what I want to share this evening. But this question was asked by one of the men who wrote one of these books. Uh, the, the title of the book is A Change of Allegiance by Brother Dean Taylor, and he, he and his wife found themselves serving in the military, and they were stationed in Germany. And in his uh, hearing, I personally heard him share his life story, and uh, I believe he was a very genuine man and his wife. But this question plagued them as they served in what eventually became a challenge to them, and they asked for an honorable discharge from the military. And this is the question he asked. Did Jesus really mean what he said? <laughs> now you might, uh, at the very beginning here, say, well, what for question are you talking about? And that's the question I'm asking. Did Jesus really mean what he said? I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. When our brother was sharing his uh, testimony this evening, he said about going to Matthew, and I thought, uh-oh, he's going to go to Matthew 5 and read the passage I'm planning to read, and that's okay. 
but I'm planning to go toward the end of the chapter, Matthew 5. And for those of you who are Bible literate and you know your Bibles, you know that this is the Sermon on the Mount. I would have to tell you tonight that I, I uh, am amazed in my ministry, in the life, sharing the Word of God, what various churches and people think about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and I'm sure you're probably aware of some of, these, uh, some of these methods or thinking patterns about Jesus' teaching. Some say that, well, the Sermon on the Mount is really kind of idealistic. You know, we can't, we can't live that out today. That's for some other period of time. That's for another age of the church when, you know, we're more perfect, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure what age they're talking about or what time frame they're talking about, but I believe this evening that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount to be a realistic way of living. Do you believe that this evening? See, my question is, did Jesus really mean what he said? Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now the uh, question that I gave you a little bit of history about was the situation of a young man and his wife serving in the military. And the question that I just posed to you plagued them day after day until they finally realized they cannot continue to serve as they were. How can we kill if Jesus said, love your enemies? Now this evening I, I'm struggling with uh, basically three subjects that I'm trying to compile into one. Um, but I... Uh, I challenge us to think about this message that Jesus was saying. 
was talking about. You know, we could go back to Leviticus and look at the old law. What we believe is the Old Testament law where it, it said there in Leviticus 24 verse 20, breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And there's many other verses in that context there that show us how the Old Testament law was to be carried out. And if a man was hurt or injury was caused, it was to be retributed immediately. But Jesus says in this passage, ye have heard that it hath been said. Okay, the old law, Leviticus. But he says, but I say unto you, we have referred to, and when I say we, in the ministry many times, we refer to this as the higher law of love. The law of Christ. The law of loving our enemies. And what does it say here in verse 44? To love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And I would like to say here this evening that when I think about this law of love, I have to, I have to be clear and honest with you that it is not a way of life that we live without having Christ, having cleansed my heart, and living as a born-again believer, having the Holy Spirit guide our life, this law cannot be lived by a carnal man. Are you with me? But I still say, and I asked you the question again, did Jesus really mean this is how we are supposed to live? We live in a troubled world. We live in a dangerous world, if I may say it that way. We live in a world where there's this, this mindset among many religious people of the world that somehow maybe God would allow this in his sovereignty, I don't know, but can the world be overtaken by hatred? If you know what I'm talking about, and I'm not here tonight being judgmental of other religious beliefs, but I present to you the truth that the law of Christ, that the higher law of love is the way to win anyone to, the, to, the, to righteousness and to holiness and to the way of life. You cannot overtake any society with a sword. It doesn't work. And yet many today are trying it. And so the law of Christ, what I want to share to you, with you tonight is not an Old Testament doctrine. It is a New Testament doctrine, the doctrine of the, uh, the principle of non-resistance. And that's why I asked you the question for you to, to really think about and meditate upon. The Christian church today, conservative churches, are struggling with the following questions. Number one. What is or should be the Christian's response to war? Number two, what does separation of church and state really mean? And what does it look like? And another one would be number three, what does the conscientious objector look like today? Today. 
Our brother shared about his personal experience of being drafted and going through what is uh, required from the from the selective service is to serve a 24-month period of alternative service rather than going into war. And so today we're living in a generation of probably, what, 45 to 50 years of having no draft um, being implemented by the government. And I'll go into that a little bit later as far as what the draft is all about. And uh, so today we have a generation of people, and by the way, um, you know that um, a young man, when he reaches his 18th birthday, is to register with the Selective Service. I stand before you here tonight as one that never registered. <laughs> uh, I, I use that as a little bit of a humor in my meetings with Selective Service, and I said, you know, I'm here, I never even registered, you don't even know who I am. He said, yes, we do, <laughs> and we know who you are. But anyway, uh, my birth date fell when, in a time frame when it was not required. I was born in December of 59, so now you can figure out how old I am, but in January of 1960, uh, the Jimmy Carter administration, the President of the United States, reinstated the registration of all 18-year-old males. And so that went back um, to the beginning of 1960 as a registration point of time. I think it was 20 years old then, but uh, anyway. The, uh, the interesting part of what I want to also share about this principle, first of all, from the scripture, then I'm going to give you some history of my workings with Selective Service, what CASP is all about, and I'd like to have uh, a little brief time of question and answers afterward, and, uh, and uh, maybe have you, answer, have you ask any other questions after the service is over as well. So I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground here. In reference to this doctrine of non-resistance, not only did Jesus point out here in Matthew 5 that we're to love our enemies, he also pointed out to Peter in the uh, context of when Jesus was being arrested there and Judas came and uh, you know the setting when the soldiers there were, were ready to take Jesus at his betrayal and Peter took out his sword and he went to cut off and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. What did Jesus tell Peter to do? Matthew 26, 52. Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Okay, so again we have a, another scripture where Jesus was plainly teaching that the way of the Christian is not that of resistance. Is not that of vengeance. The book of Romans teaches that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And then Jesus also, further, when he was in front of Pilate, who told him, I have the authority to, to release you or to condemn you to death. Jesus told Pilate, you, <laughs> in my own words, you basically have no authority over me. But you know what Jesus told Pilate? 
John 18.36, a very foundational verse and what I'm sharing with you tonight. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And I'd just like to share with you this evening that Jesus, in his teaching, taught a lot about different subjects. But I want to impress upon your minds this evening that the foremost thing he talked about and he wanted his hearers to understand is that his kingdom is not of this world. The preaching of the kingdom of God is lacking today in our conservative churches. I I don't say that. Hopefully it's not that way here. But kingdom preaching. Preaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And you know, Jesus said, in, in, in explaining the kingdom, he said uh, that the kingdom is within you. And so really, the kingdom of God, I believe we become part of it when we become blood-washed, born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And you know that experience God intends that experience to be one that is personal to you and to me on an individual basis and reaches all the way into eternity. The kingdom. That's another whole subject that could be uh, talked about. But I'd uh, like to look now at your brochures that you have received and give you a little bit of history of the the uh, CAS program, and as I go through this, uh, I'll try to give you at least a nutshell of an understanding of who the Selective Service is and how this all works. You take your brochure and open it up. In the beginning here it says, in 2005, several brethren had the vision to develop a program where young Amish and Mennonite men could serve in case of a military draft. Now let me just say, stop here and, and point out to you, this is nothing against your moderator here this evening, but the draft age is 18 to 26 for young men. That's the draft age. Um, so this program, several brethren had this vision of developing a program whereby young men could serve uh, in case of a military draft. They asked Christian Aid Ministries, CAM there, to help provide leadership in this endeavor. The draft preparation service program that developed out of this effort is called Conservative Anabaptist Service Program. CAST's primary purpose is to provide alternative places of employment approved by the United States Selective Service System, or SSS, where conscientious objectors can serve their required time should a draft be activated by the U.S. government. Church constituencies that meet CAST's minimum requirements may participate in the program. Now, let me be clear. This program is not a replacement of the service that is required if a draft were enacted. Some of the young men who have served on the various projects in CASP have this understanding that, oh, yes, 
I was, I was served on a cast project for four weeks. Now I can, now I can uh, uh, qualify as a conscientious objector. That is not necessarily true. But it is, in the eyes of selective service, it is a program whereby they are blessing us as conservative churches in developing a, a history of... of uh, a history of serving the public in disaster relief, in forestry projects, and, and so on, that I'll try to cover a little bit here later. But it is to develop a, a history that we are interested in helping people recover from disasters and those kinds of work, that kind of work. Now let me just uh, point out the goals here of CASP is to be a Lassian between church constituencies and the, the SSS, and to give leadership in assuring compliance to SSS standards. Just quickly jumping over to the next fold part there under pilot projects. Down about the second paragraph, it says, to satisfy the SSS, projects must benefit the nation's health, safety, and interests. Those are the three areas that Selective Service wants the young men who are serving on CAFs to make sure that it falls under those categories. And I think if you go back to the 1W program or any other draft prior to that, which takes us back uh, probably before most of our, any of your life uh, experiences here this evening, is that uh, it was to be the, to benefit the nation in some way, whether health organizations, safety organizations, or various interests. Uh, and it's kind of a broad area of employment that was covered and would have been accepted under Selective Service Guidelines. Now, jumping back to the goals of CASP number two there, to provide, on, to provide employment that will enhance the conviction convictions and conscientious objectors from participating churches provide a work environment with ethical and moral values that will benefit the conscientious objector. Um, I might point out there that many of the men that I have heard share their personal testimony of 1W experiences and working in various projects. This one I just pointed out here as a goal of CASP was very much uh, minimized and probably, probably highly neglected by the church in giving spiritual leadership so that the environment had good ethical and moral values promoted in the various places of service. Maybe I should just uh, stop here because... My curiosity is getting the best of me. How many of you older men served in 1W? Wow. Okay, there are quite a few. All right. I, I would be interested in hearing your, your testimony about this. But in most of the experiences that I have heard about was that the church was unprepared to give spiritual direction to the various places where the young men served. And, I, and again, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not being critical when I say that. Because I think today, 
if a draft was ever to be reenacted again from the government level, I believe as churches, at least I feel we would be maybe a bit more prepared, but a lot of challenges that came to the church back then would probably be, uh, what's the word I want, uh, be enlarged or expanded in our area today. But I would have to say this, that in my experience of meeting Selective Service, various personnel from Washington and, and a few other places, that I do not believe we would have a very serious problem with the government working with us, but our main problem and our main challenge would come within our own communities who do not appreciate us as conservative people taking a stand and asking for our young men to be able to serve in alternative places of employment. Now, if you, if you didn't follow me there, I'll just uh, illustrate it this way. I heard a man give his uh, personal testimony who shared, I think it was from, uh, he was from this area, Lancaster, Lebanon County, somewhere, and he went to Baltimore and served his time. But back home, he had neighbors who became very hostile to his family, to his parents, when they said to them, our son is across the water fighting in the battle, and your son, you're telling me, is only serving in Baltimore? You see what happened? And, and in some cases, it was very unfortunate. I say today, that would probably be our biggest challenge. However, getting back to CASP's, uh, the, the goals of CASP provide employment in both national and international settings, and in, in parentheses there you will see the government will possibly approve sending young men to work in foreign fields. That is, that is part of the... Um, part of the program that the alternative branch of Selective Service is working on today, and they have left us know in our last meeting, which was in August of 2017, that uh, they are very much interested in foreign projects. So that may be a new development that uh, Selective Service would approve. And finally, it is to develop and approve church constituency networks for employment projects. You might be asking, what does the word constituency mean? It could mean uh, conferences or fellowships. I think tonight, a uh, question I would ask you is, Weavertown is Amish Mennonite, so you would be part of the Beachy Amish, is that correct? I see some heads nodding. <laughs> That's what my assumption was when I came here this evening. And uh, you will see, flipping over on the back side of your program, you will see the various church constituencies that involved in CASP. And right now there is 19 different church groups across the country. And uh, we have biannual board meetings in Ohio at uh, Christian Aid Ministries headquarters in Berlin. And so I was just out there uh, last week, I believe, for our meeting in January. And so you will see the cast board uh, representatives there and members, the uh, church group participation and so on. And uh, what I would like to share with you now is, is a, brief, a brief history of who Selective Service is.
Uh, how this all came about is that, uh, maybe I should say this yet, in the CAS projects, it's a four-week program where young men can, can go and serve. Uh, I'll just share one illustration. Our Mid-Atlantic Fellowship just had a CAS project in uh, Lumberton, North Carolina. I think we took uh, 10 young men there, and uh, it was uh, overseen by three we had a, a coordinator for the project that gave direction to the whole project, and we had cooks to make the food, and, and uh, um, yeah, jo uh, crew leaders to lead out in the various projects. And it's run for four weeks. And uh, many of them share their testimonies. Uh, I wanted to say that there's a, uh, a couple brochures in the back on the table there from various groups that shared uh, cast projects, and they put together a, a history of what they learned and various testimonies of the young men that served. And you're more than welcome to, to look at those and, and see what uh, the young men are saying about it. One thing I might point out here yet in this brochure, to anyone who has the opportunity, this is under alternative service workers, write about their experiences. And it says, I counted it a privilege to be part of the 2017 CAS program. It was considered a very valuable time in my life. And then jumping down to the next paragraph, he says, to anyone who has the opportunity to serve in a CAS project, I would urge you to attend. Yes, there, are, there will be challenges, and yes, you will step out of your comfort zone. But remember, a comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. <laughs> okay, so... Our Christian life is to be fruitful, right? So we need to get out of our comfort zone and, and, uh, and go and serve others. All right. <clears throat> Selective service is a branch of the U.S. government. I used to think that selective service was connected to the Department of Defense, and I was recently informed that they are not. It is a separate entity, which its director is a direct appointment by the president, and so every four years the director of selective service is either out of a job or else he is reappointed by an administration who would either be reelected for a second term or if it changes, then the new incoming administration needs to appoint a new director. And I have, uh, I have some information here on what does the Selective Service System provide for America. America's, uh, just a few things I might point out here, America's only time-proven, inex inexpensive defense manpower insurance policy in a, in a still dangerous and uncertain world. It is a hedge against underestimating the number of soldiers needed to fight in a future crisis. Selective service, like I say, is a branch of government that basically, um, I might also include here the, the registration that a young man does at his, within uh, 60 days of your 18th birthday, you are required to register with selective service. There are various ways to register. But all you need to do is provide your name and address, uh, your date of birth, and your social security number. 
you do not need to mention on your registration form anything to do with being a conscientious objector because it does not apply at the time when you register. So basically what Selective Service does with the registrations that come into their computer database, they simply enter those various uh, registrations, names, like I said, names, addresses, birth dates, and social security numbers of all the young men who register. And if you send in a form, that basically ends up in the trash and you're in the database. They will normally send you a reminder that yes, you are registered or you can check that on, um, online as well. Registering online is another option. Obviously, I'm, I'm right at the age bracket there where <laughs> modern technology and I usually don't get along too well. But anyway, if you're computer savvy, you can register online. Um, in my um, age time and, and since that and before then, most men registered by filling out the form that you got at the post office and mailing it in. But I do remind you that it is a requirement of the law to register. It is a very, very serious matter to not register. And uh, Selective Service looks at that as a, a felony to not register. It's punishable by five years in prison or $250,000 fine which obviously can be negotiated. But anyway, Selective Service is in a registration-only mode. Uh, if the draft were ever to be reenacted, it, uh, it would take a request from the military, a decision by the Senate, and an, a, a signature by the President to call for a draft. Presently, the political um, idea of the draft is not very popular. It had been introduced some time ago, and I forget the, uh, the actual legislation number that of, the, of the law that was being considered, but it was, it was so strongly um, turned down that it has never come back up to be voted on. It was something like I'm just using numbers here. It was something like 286 to 1. All the senators, House of Representatives, they were all against it. And the reason that they are against it is they do not want someone serving in the military who really is doing it against his will. They do not want to force. Uh, the draft kind of forces young men into serving in the military. And... Uh, so the, uh, the other thing, interesting things that I might point out about selective service is that they are very serious about working with groups who are not involved in the pacifist movement. <laughs> That's another subject that uh, could be shared this evening, pacifism or non-resistant Christian, which... I picked up a pamphlet not too long ago with that title, and I don't even remember where it came. I don't think it's in print anymore. But anyway, I'll share a little experience that I had the first time that I visited at Arlington, Virginia, at their headquarters. 
They asked us a couple questions. They wanted to know who we were. <laughs> you know, what's your history? Where do you come from? Which Mennonite group are you with? And once we identified that, they, had, they said, okay, well, some other questions we have. Are you involved in marches on Washington? Do you sign any petitions uh, for your local or national authorities to vote certain ways on laws? He said, no, we're from the historic peace churches. They said, okay, we can sit down and have a meeting. <laughs> Some of you older men may understand what I'm talking about. If you're involved in a nonviolent, forceful way of telling the government how to rule, they will not look at you favorably when it comes to this issue of young men serving in the draft or serving in the military. And I point that out to simply impress upon your mind this evening that the separation of church and state is very important to our political leaders. They know all about it. Okay? And so I would just put that out there as a plea to you that uh, to consider when you are faced with the, <laughs> with the invitation, I would say, to sign up and, you know, become involved in, in forceful ways. Where all is CASP working? Where are these projects happening? Right now... Hurricane Harvey devastated Texas. Christian Aid Ministries has a, a disaster relief service, DRS, base in Port Arthur, Texas. And there is a possibility of running cast projects, four-week projects year-round there. We're not sure how that's all going to develop. But there are thousands of homes that need rebuilt from the flooding just 21 miles from the church that Christian Aid has under lease at this point was the area where they recorded, recorded 62 inches of rainfall in Hurricane Harvey. And so if you can imagine, which I can't, many people, poor families, poor areas that lost their homes, they never experienced flooding in the past, never. They never needed flood insurance. They were in areas where they never expected flooding at all. So that's one area. Uh, Lumberton, North Carolina is another one. That was a flood project. Rennell, West Virginia was a flood project. Cedars of Lebanon State Park is a forestry project. That's in Tennessee. Uh, Louisiana, Hurricane Katrina, you were probably all aware of that years ago. And Texas forest fires California's forest fires, the devastation and, and uh, natural disaster areas is where CASP is working because it, it falls under the category of helping people to rebuild from disaster. And that's part of, part of the mission, part of the work. The uh, draft... In history, I'll just point this out, a little bit of statistics here. In World War I was the first conflict that uh, Selective Service would have initiated a conscription of young men being inducted into the war. 
and there was 2,666,867 inductions from the draft that were, were uh, sent to the military. World War II was obviously the largest work that Selective Service did with over 10 million young men sent to the war through the, through the work of the draft. The Korean War, there was 1.6 million people um, through the draft inducted into the war, and the Vietnam War was 1.7 million young men that were, were sent into, into war. Where, uh, where have, uh, what, or what are some of the ways that you can prepare young men to think about in, uh, to think about preparing, looking at uh, being prepared in their registration and so on. There, I have a couple of these draft information manuals in the back on the table. And they have, uh, the back of this booklet, they have uh, sample uh, forms that are filled out. And this, the SSS form 22, it's on page 56, is a sample of the registration form that you would need to fill out with the Selective Service if there was a draft enacted. So you have samples of forms that are to fill out here. And one thing that I did not bring along with me this evening is a form that we try in all of our mid-Atlantic churches is to have our young men, say at age 15, 16, and this could also include young women, with questions about how they would respond to questions about non-resistance. It's called a a peace questionnaire. And... uh, like I said, I, I did not bring one of those with me this evening because I couldn't find it in my files. And, uh, but anyway, that is uh, part of what we help young men. And like I said, young ladies could also answer those questions. I took some of the questions that are asked uh, about their, uh, their understanding of non-resistance. And uh, I made a message out of it one Sunday morning and preached about it. How would you respond to these questions? And so sometimes young men have the questions, well, what what happens when a draft is enacted? And I'll try to just briefly cover this and then uh, bring this to a close. Um, What happens in a draft is you would be notified, they would probably notify you by mail, that uh, you have been selected through a lottery system where they, where they would use your birth date as um, in, a, in a lottery system to, to pull out your birth date, uh, the birth year. So out of your birth year, then they would number all those who were chosen out of that year. And they start with the draft age, starting age is 20, 20 year olds. Those are the most vulnerable to be drafted should it be reopened. So then what you would do is you would need to fill out the form that's in this book here and send it in to your local draft board, which at this point, Selective Service, I think, has 11,000 active draft board members across the country. What that means is, is they're simply trained by the Selective Service in an eight-hour program of training. 
and questions to ask young men, you would need to stand before draft board and claim, and, uh, and claim your conscientious objector status. But I got ahead of myself. <laughs> the notice that you would get in the mail means that you would need to report for a physical examination first. All 20-year-olds who would be called would need to go through the physical examination to, to determine, first of all, if you're physically, emotionally, and mentally stable enough to serve in the military. If you pass that physical examination, you are then given a, a, a status, which is a 1A status, which means you are then eligible to serve in the military. At that point, then, is when you would fill out your, your reclassification um, statement, which is, again, in the back of this uh, draft information manual. You would, you would make an appeal that you want to be reclassified. The reclassification is, is that you want to be reclassified from a 1A to a 1O, O meaning alternative service. And so then is when you would, uh, you would go to stand before the local draft board, and the local draft board is usually men from your own uh, locality. That's one thing that the Selective Service assured us of, that should there ever be a draft reenacted, they would try to pull the local draft boards from your immediate geographical area so that they're somewhat familiar with the families and the young men who are appealing for a reclassification as a conscientious objector. Now, that draft board would then determine, based on your testimony, whether or not you could be given a CO status or not. If they would deny your request to become a CO, you have an appeal board on a regional level if they would deny your appeal, you could then go to a national appeal board. So you have basically three options. But the Selective Service has made it very clear with us that uh, your young men tell your young men to be serious and genuine about their testimony. They want you to be serious. They want you to be sincere about your beliefs and that your beliefs form your life habits, your life, your life uh, style, and how, it, how it's working in your life. Because they made us aware that if you do not pass at a local level, you're probably, your chances of, of appealing to the regional level and the national level may be worse of a chance to, to convince them that you're serious about your beliefs. So that's not to scare anyone. We talked about, uh, we, in, in one question and answer session with Selective Service, we simply asked them, well, you know, young men at, at 15, 16, 17 years old can make a lot of foolish mistakes in life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, the old term was sowing your wild oats. You know, you remember that? What do you do in a case where a young man has some maybe bad things in his history? 
He comes to his 18th birthday and he registers with Selective Service and a draft comes and at 20 years old, he's drafted. But he has this history. What will you allow that young man to do? And they said that's why we have a personal dialogue between the draft board and the young man. We want to see that he's sincere at the time he's sharing his testimony. And yes, we're not going to go back on his Facebook account. You see, we're, we're living in a modern technological world where the U.S. government can, can look at what you're placing on Facebook if they want. They can look at those records. They can look at your driving record. They can look at all your criminal records. Hopefully you don't have any. But they do, they do, uh, they can look at those. But they said, we, we want to know the sincerity of the young man's testimony when he shares it. So that's uh, some history of what I, what I have uh, to share with you tonight.